Today on the Dad the Best I Can show. The mental health part, you get into your 40s, um, and I think that those can be very perilous times for, for men. Because um, at some point, your life starts to get fixed, right? So you wouldn't anticipate that you're going to have any more kids, right? Um, right. This, is, this is your spouse. These are your children. Your job is your job. Oftentimes, your spouse's job is your spouse's job. This is it. You're not in a, my life is going to be different at some point. When you're in 20s, maybe I don't know who I'm going to marry. Maybe we're married. I don't know how many kids we're going to have. At some point, you're like, this is it. This is the number of kids. This is who I'm doing this with, right? Um, and you can get into what is this um, unfamiliar territory. And I think that as scary as it can be, to get on stage and talk to a group of strangers. For too many men, it's scarier to be genuinely vulnerable with their male friends. To say, I've really got something I'm struggling with. Like, I'm, I've got some stuff at work that I can't manage. I've got some stuff in my life that I don't know how to do. There's some issue with my kids that I'm I don't know how to find my way through. So the most important thing I think you can be doing in your 40s, in your 50s, is really leaning on those relationships and um, being vulnerable when you need to about getting help when you, when you know you're getting into danger. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rob. We are back for part two of our conversation with Jamie Bendel. Jamie is a stand-up comedian lawyer, entrepreneur, dad to three daughters, and this is a really incredible conversation, very powerful stuff. We get into talking about men's mental health, uh, what it's like when you get into your 40s, and just a really, really deep dive into things that I'm sure a lot of you guys think about. Hope you guys enjoy it. So when we started, you were talking about the, the fear of doing stand-up and whatnot. Part of the reason why I always, I, I didn't feel a lot of that stress, I think stems from the fact that the people in the audience are strangers. They know nothing about me. They don't know who I am as a person. Um, I'm just a stranger to them and they're strangers to me. And so why do I care what a stranger thinks, right? Um, Likewise, I think I would analogize some of that to say, so what, what's the failure in saying, let's try to go to the lake today, or let's go to the park, or let's ride our bikes, or whatever it is. What's the failure in the attempt? I, I really rarely see much in the way of negative, particularly when that's time that you're investing in your relationship with your kids, right? There's far more risk involved with not doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I really, I, I, to me, it, all, it just goes back to just don't make it so hard, right? It's, it really is simple of you want your, you know, you have a kid who wants to be a pitcher. My daughters were pitchers in softball. I, I, we would literally take a bucket. I would get, when I was first doing it, I would be frustrated. I would want them to, you know, the whole thing's contentious. And then I finally got to a point to say, so here's the deal. 
Every ball you throw that's a strike doesn't go back in the bucket. We'll, we'll throw until the bucket's empty. And it was a way for both of us to be time limited, that it wasn't going to go on forever. Mm-hmm. And it really didn't require much explanation. Mm-hmm. I just sit and catch. It's not a strike. Goes back in the bucket. It is a strike. Goes out of the bucket. Not a lot of dialogue. Not a lot of correct. Not a lot of whatever. And it tur- and it took what had started to be kind of this like, and it eliminated a lot of that. It'll be like, let's turn on the radio and listen to some music and talk to you about your school day and you know do this task that needed to be done and not make it something that either one of us was dreading. Because yeah. there's time we're spending together. Why would you want to dread time with your kids? Right. I think, I mean, I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are because your, your girls are older. So you were kind of doing a lot of your parenting before we had these incredible smartphones in our pocket that are these s- distraction, soothing devices that anytime you're annoyed or bored, you can just go to. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure every generation kind of says the same thing, but have you noticed a difference? Have, has that been something you have struggled with as a parent or you see your daughter, your kids are like, eh, I'm bored. I'm going to just go on this when you want to be out there riding a bike or actually being invested all the time. So I still go through that with, uh, so our, I probably, I, they're probably use more TikTok and Snapchat now than probably other social media. Um, I hate, I hate, I hate the every two second face picture. Mm-hmm. So they could be snapping back to their friends and it drives me nuts. Like it, that a hundred percent drives me nuts. Except that I do feel like there's a part of it that is um, age appropriate as much as I hate to say that, that there is, that there's a developmental age appropriateness. Um, and um, would you say that as a general proposition, you had what you felt was like a good high school experience? Yeah, I'd say from a so. social perspective and whatever. Yeah, kind of a little bit sheltered in a bubble, but yeah, okay. overall good. Had good friends. Yes, you had some running buddies and of whatever. Course. Yeah. Okay. So, I feel like I would I would say sort of the same. I would say the same. And on the whole, I had a positive high school experience from the standpoint of I had some good friends. Um, I would find out on Monday, let's say that there was a party that maybe I didn't get invited to. I didn't find it out on Friday. I probably didn't find it out on Saturday. We weren't in a cell phone era, right? Um, certainly not in a social media era. And I, I do feel that from a developmental standpoint, there are probably some bigger long-term, you know, we, ha- we, ha- we have yet to see in society how does how does a fully connected generation do when they're both raised on the technology and then transition into adult relationships? You know, mm-hmm. I will tell you that as a, as a, and I'm granted, I'm no social scientist, but um, nobody that I talk to in a comedy club, when I talk to a couple that is dating, have any of them met at all anymore, any other way than online. Mm-hmm. nobody says we met at the office. Nobody says our friends introduced us. Mm-hmm. All of them are saying we met on an app, um, which is such a change. 
I, uh, this is kind of silly to say, but when I was in law school, I had a friend of mine who wound up with an internship. One of her, one of her jobs was working for match.com. And so in law school, she came in one day, we're all sitting in class and whatever. And she says, Hey, listen, before anybody does anything today, I need all of you to sign up for this company that I work for. It's an online dating thing. And everybody's like, online dating, like whatever. But she had us all sign up and do these original match.com things. And I remember me, my wife is six years older than I am. And at some point I had met, we got talking about something. And I said, Oh, I've had a match.com profile for years in law school. And she looked at me like I was the sketchiest guy in America <laughs> because I had some online dating profile. And now here it is 20 years later and nobody meets any other way. Um, and I do think that it can have the tendency to devalue um, the permanency of relationships because there's always a new one potentially available just behind it. Um, and, and uh, you know, I don't know. But I, yeah, yeah I, I still struggle with that with the girls. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be, it's, it'll be interesting when they are, you know, meeting boys and one day getting married that those discussions, because they are so different, like of, I mean, relationships, I think, like you said, those apps really do. They are such a game changer of thousands of years of evolution of how we meet people to now it's literally just like, nope, you couldn't go into a bar and talk to 40 girls and decide, you know, it's absolutely mind blowing to see how this little yeah. thing. Well, so ironically enough, which I think is true, is uh, so all of life, all of life. And I had a very good friend in law school who got married while we were in law school. And I was asking him one day, I said, dude, how, do you, how did you know like she's the one? And he actually said, um, because I believe in my heart of hearts that if I had the opportunity to meet every other available woman in the world, I would still pick her. And I thought, well, that's okay. That's a good answer. Like that's, his, I mean, that's a pretty tight answer. Um, but the reality is all of our lives, all of our lives are really led principally by geolocation. It's not a coincidence that your best friend grew up across the street, mm -hmm. right? Because that was the kid that was available to you. You, mm -hmm. you didn't have like Tinder for friends when you were eight, <laughs> where you'd be like, oh, Brian, four neighborhoods over looks way cooler, right? <laughs> you, you figured out the Kevin across the street from you because that was the kid, right? Yeah. The, reason you, the, the reason you have a high school sweetheart is because that was the sweetheart in your high school. Yeah. You, you weren't, you know, cross state, cross country, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I think that this idea that these kids, that these kids have that um, relationships can be as perishable as that we were dropping one of my daughters off at school and it was the crazy. So there's the, so there we're there. We're, getting acclimated, it's college drop-off weekend, you assume every other kid that's roughly your age is a brand new college student. There's these boys and they're noticing my daughters and my daughters are noticing the boys. And at some point, one of my daughters strikes up this conversation and the girls completely take the lead, completely take the lead, talk, chatting these boys up and whatever. And then of course the guys are all in their group with their whatever. What do they do? They all exchange Snapchat information. Within minutes of us ending that interaction with these guys, these boys are all in their Snap stories. Mm -hmm. Amina's coming. So the boldness 
that came from being behind the screen was way more oh, yeah. than how bold they were person to person. Yeah. You know, it was, I don't know. I couldn't yeah. imagine it. It's so. mind blowing. I mean, yeah, that fear yeah. when you're 16 years old is not the same as it is today. I can't, I, I it's, it'll be interesting. And I think it will be important yeah. as dads to kind of become knowledgeable about this stuff because you don't want to have a conversation that in my day you met somebody, I mean, it's just not the way the world works and they're going to tune you no. out. So I do think it's, yeah. it's important too, like you said, you know, keep learning all these things. Yeah. Well, and some of it is just, again, kind of behavior. So, so our, I always, I wonder, so would you, would you say that your behavior as an adult, are you adding new behaviors? Or do you feel like your behaviors are fairly prescribed at this point? No, I've, you know, consciously, you know, within the last five, 10 years, you know, with the advent of podcasts and hearing and reading from people, I have really made a lot of conscious changes. Even I bash on Instagram and stuff all the time, but the stuff I learn on there from these, you know, the mental health side of it, the behavioral stuff. So oh, yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. always learning with the hope that A, I want to improve my life and B, let me pass on some healthy healthy things to my kids. Okay. So, so that's probably a good example of a behavior that's normalized. So there was a time when you maybe wouldn't have looked to something like Instagram to get knowledge. Maybe you, you would have used it for entertainment, but you wouldn't necessarily have used it for knowledge acquisition. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So that's, that I guess would be a good example of a behavior being normalized. Right. Um, because I do think that part of the, part of the parenting challenge is understanding the relationship and the disparity that could exist between behavior that was normal or normalized when you were a comparable age and the actual normalized behavior now, mm -hmm. um, which is not to necessarily say that the behavior should be accepted. Um, but you know, um, because I do think like, I, I remember when the girls first had their devices, and we just, we, we actually just had a thing about it this, this over the summer. I think if you're on FaceTime with your friends, it's like your friend is still over. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're not allowed to have friends over after 11 o'clock at night, then you sh can't be on your, on your phone FaceTime with a friend at 1.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Because I would never, your boyfriend couldn't be here at one thirty, mm -hmm. right? Like that's, yeah. so True. to me, it's the functional equivalent. You're looking at his face. He's looking at you, you're, you know? And so I kind of, you know, I, my wife's like, you're being ridiculous. And I'm like, I don't think I'm being ridiculous. There's yeah. a boy in the bedroom at one thirty at night, <laughs> right? Like that's not, that's not and how it, we're doing this. And he's know? fearless because all he has a screen to, uh, in it's between right, right there. Yeah. Right, so I, right. so I, when the girls were like all in middle school in particular, I was very, I, and I, and I, and I recognize that it is a odd thing about how you grow up. So my best friends, the people who I was closest to growing up. I was in their houses all the time. I was never in their parents' bedroom. <laughs> right? Like it was just the weirdest thing to be like, yeah. just, I couldn't tell you what my best friends growing up's parents' bedrooms look like. Right? Yeah. 
And, and I realized I carried that into adulthood. The girls will have friends over, they'll come upstairs and be like, get, the, get these people. I don't, this, is not, this is not a public part of the house. This uh, is yeah. a private part of the house. Right. Show some respect. Yeah. That's it's good. just a weird, and you realize like, oh, that's clearly like some weird thing that yeah. I brought from childhood that says right. clearly there's a line here. And yeah. so when the girls were younger, I'm like, you're not taking pictures to post on Instagram or Snapchat in the bathroom. Yeah. You're not taking pictures in your bedroom. You're 10. Nobody needs to know what the inside of your right. bedroom looks like or 12 that's, or whatever it is, right? That's, yeah. That is. I mean, there are so many new normals that we have to look at. So I do, before we, I got to get the kids here in a little bit, but All I right, do want to ask you, because you do, I mean, people like you and Jesse, I'm sure you even know a lot of dads. Once they hit 40, they got a bunch of young kids. Their life kind of does plateau. They aren't learning. They aren't doing all these new cool things. It seems like that's always been a part of you, but what do you tell other friends and what kind of advice might you give other dads as they get older and maybe lose connections with their friends and they're not as social? Because I do think it affects our mental health in a lot of ways. Is there, is there some kind of advice or something that you've done that that's helped you grow, continue to grow? Well, so I, I, so I think that you'd raise a great point that, um, so part of being a good parent, I think, is um, sort of demonstrating to your kids that you have your own identity outside of them. Um, I think that women tend to, um, so, if, so if, a, if it was going to be out of balance, the stereotype might be that women lose their sense of self as they become moms because they take and they maybe identify themselves principally as mothers. And I'm speaking obviously very broadly. It may be that that's not as common an experience for dads. There may be fewer men who principally identify themselves as dad before they identify themselves as whatever their role is outside the house. And again, that's painting with a very broad brush mm -hmm. from a stereotypical perspective. That said, um, I think it's important. So I play a lot of basketball, right? That's kind of, I'm not much of a golfer. I do play a lot of basketball. Um, that's important time for me. It's social time with the guys I play with. Uh, it, it gives it, it allows me to go out and enjoy time. That's important to me with other people. Um, it doesn't necessarily come at the expense of what I would have to do with the kids. So mm. candidly, I have never been the, I'm going to skip the kids game because I'm going to go play golf. Like that's just, I just, I, that's, I know people do it. It's just not anything that I ever could wrap my head around, you know? Um, the mental health part, you get into your forties. Um, and I think that those can be very perilous times for, for men, because, um, at some point your life starts to get fixed, right? So you wouldn't anticipate that you're going to have any more kids, right? Um, right. this is, this is your spouse. These are your children. Your job is your job. Oftentimes your spouse's job is your spouse's job. This is it. You're not in a, my life is going to be different at some point. When you're in 20s, maybe I don't know who I'm going to marry. Maybe we're married. I don't know how many kids we're going to have. At some point you're like, this is it. This is the number of kids. This is who I'm doing this with, right? Um, and you can get into what is this um, unfamiliar territory and 
I think that as scary as it can be to get on stage and talk to a group of strangers, for too many men, it's scarier to be genuinely vulnerable with their male friends. To say, I've really got something I'm struggling with. Like, um, I've got some stuff at work that I can't manage. I've got some stuff in my life that I don't know how to do. There's some issue with my kids that I'm, I don't know how to find my way through. So the most important thing I think you can be doing in your 40s, in your 50s, is really leaning on those relationships and um, being vulnerable when you need to about getting help when you, when you know you're getting into danger. You know, um, it's, it's odd, but I think statistically that there are some predictable peaks like for issues. And I know I'm taking us a little off field here, but I think relative to um, like suicides, right? Young men is a high risk suicide population. Old men, 70s and up are also a high risk population because I think in part they, they perceive all of my value is used up, right? I don't, I, I, so that's a high risk area. The next risk is right where you are in your forties. Like that's a massive risk area because it can, it can start to feel overwhelming. So, um, you know, I think not only for your personal well-being, but also for the well-being of your kids and the rest of your family, like leaning on that network. And if you can't lean into your network and say, I'm at risk, I'm having trouble, I got to tell you, you got the wrong network. Like you shouldn't have a group of guys that, that you can't go to and, and have some, somebody, I'm not saying you need eight of them, but mm -hmm. two or three guys that, that you can have real communication with um, and, and help you through those, those challenging times. Yeah, that's that really does hit home. And I think that, that, that group can change that can evolve. You might not totally. have your friends yeah, yeah. from high school yeah. until yeah. you're, you know, yeah. so very yeah. important stuff that I think yeah. you're sharing that a lot of guys are going through and don't talk about, you know, that's, you know, the whole, that was a big reason I started the podcast and wrote the book is just because like guys are not talking about this stuff. We'll say, you know, how was the game on Saturday? And you know, oh, another kid. It's cool. all skipping along the surface. It's yeah. all skipping right along the surface. Right. That it's that you have you have to find a time. And I will. And I had an experience, um, and um, was with somebody. It was a guy I had coached his kid. He was somebody who I knew casually in the community, and um, I ran into him one night out at a local place around the neighborhood and his behavior was off. It was not, it was out of character with who I knew him to be as a person. Granted, I wasn't super close to him, but I knew him well enough to recognize and be like, holy moly, this is not how I know this person. We chatted, we chatted about the kids. It was how are your girls doing? How are my girls doing? Whatever. And I left and I actually stopped my car in the parking lot and thought, I should maybe go back in and talk to him. And then I thought, nah, that's, that's, I'm overthinking it and whatever. Go home, uh, rest of the weekend finishes. Monday, my wife calls me at the office and she says, you're never gonna believe so-and-so killed himself over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And I thought, 
that's impossible. I just saw this guy Friday night. So this is what the girls are telling me, this person, you know. Um, and I, by no means, by no means um, would I suggest that if I had done anything different, that it changes that outcome, right? But my point is, is that there was some crisis that was going on in that person's life. And it was going on in such a way that it, it reached a point where I, as a, as a ring out, <laughs> was able to identify, holy moly, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. um, and so my suspicion is, is that somebody in some of those closer to the rings also had an opportunity to grab a hold of that situation and say, is there something that we could be doing differently here? Mm -hmm. um, so it's real. I mean, it's. But it's, it's, it's uncomfortable exactly. to even make that comment to your friend. I think maybe women are better at doing that. You know, oh, uh, Jessica, it seems like you're struggling. But guys, we just don't go there naturally. So we're better off, eh, I'll just keep it to myself. But I think that's something that you yeah. know, I'm learning, that even that, that question could, could really help somebody. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge, a huge difference. To, to, and, it's, and it's okay so let's suppose, so let's, let me then maybe put it in this terms to somebody else who's going to listen to this and take some action based on it. If you go out on that limb and say to a person, so the, so the equation is simple. There's a person in your life. There's a male friend. There's another dad. There's somebody who has value to you. Your, their relationship with you matters. If it's valuable to you, then it should be valuable enough to say, are you okay? And really mean, are you okay? And if you get pushback, um, drop into some humor, right? That's a great place to use humor and to be like, hey buddy, I'm just checking out, like, hey, you know, whatever. You know, so you don't have to feel defensive about the ask, mm -hmm. use it as an opportunity to one, because you've planted the seed, and it's, it's possible that the person doesn't bite then, but comes back to you in a week or 10 days later and says, hey, man, you know, when you call me, uh, let's go grab some lunch because I got some stuff that I actually do want to talk to you about, mm -hmm. right? You've at least expressed a willingness that you're open to that kind of conversation, mm -hmm. which is half the battle, right? If your relationship is so tenuous that I can't go, hey, man, you, are you, you know, you doing okay? I, what, you know, what, what does that, what does that ultimately say about us that I'm, that I feel that I'm at risk to be like, Hey, whatever happened to your buddy, Bobby, you'd be like, Oh, you know, I asked him how he was doing one time and he apparently took it the wrong way. And now we don't talk anymore. <laughs> right? Like, right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. well so. and besides humor, which is always good and self-deprecation, which I know you're a master at as well. I think, uh, sharing your own stuff. Hey, you know, I'm going through this. That does open the door for other people to be like, Oh, I didn't know we were, we could talk about those kind of things. So that's something else I find in conversations, me sharing what I'm going through and having them listen. Now, you know, there is some kind of door that's been open where, Oh, all right. I didn't that's know right. it was cool to talk about that. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a hundred percent. Absolutely the case. And that, and where we have questions, right, or concerns, the first place you should be going is to the people who are, you, who are closest to you, mm -hmm. right? I've been, I've been fortunate enough to have some great friends over the years. Um, and if it weren't for the fact that they were also great people, 
um, I, I, my life would be would have been way worse without mm. their presence in it. You know, so uh, of course I should be able to go to them and be like, "Hey, man, your boy Jamie needs some help here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that too, as you said, our as our world shrinks, we're mom, kids, all that the person that you might want to be talking to isn't your wife. It's not your kids. It might not even be your parents because there's like a different thing. And it might not even be your old friends. It is cultivating right. those new relationships or saying, Oh, Jamie, it seems like I've heard you talk about this kind of stuff. Can we talk? So I think like that's kind of the hole that I think a lot of guys get in is like, I got nobody to talk to. My wife doesn't want to hear it, you know? So I think it's yeah. it really is renewing these relationships or yeah and some of it so think about so there has to be space right for things to things to develop and so if i'm always on an agenda and i'd be like hey man so listen i got 10 minutes what's going on with you you doing okay (laughs) like what's going on in your life like you're all right you need anything like how's everything that you know and you feel like well, I got to process all this stuff that like, I don't know the 10 minutes is going to get it done. Right. My default might be like, no, that's no, okay. Right. Yeah. But if you were to be like, come on, let's go get lunch. Right. And you'd hang out and after you get through the pleasantries of what's going on and, da, 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 and you're testing it out and you're feeling like, is this a safe time to broach the subject of whatever that other issue is? It's, it's, and so in the same way that you, you, it's important to carve out individual time for your children. Uh, I would make the argument that it's just as important to carve out individual time, um, in the event that you do have a friend who's got some stuff that, that they need to, that they need to be able to mm-hmm. be talking to you about, or that you have stuff to talk about, right? Because I may have to go to the lunch twice. If I haven't talked to you in a year, I may have to be like, Hey, can we go grab a quick lunch? Yeah. Because I'm gonna need to schedule a second lunch yeah. to well, say, "Hey, I got some, I got some stuff." <laughs> and, and and any dad that has kids and is married or divorced or anything is gonna jump at that opportunity, right? Like the chance of going to hang out with guys, where especially if somebody's initiating it, like at least my friends are like, "Yeah, come on over." It's a, like they're very right. excited to. So offering yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're probably not gonna That's be turned right. down. No, you shouldn't be. You yeah. Shouldn't be, so. Cool. Well, this is, so I know you also do some uh, relationship and kind of this kind of family talk on what Atlanta and company you're on TV doing some bits. Uh, so I've had the good fortune over, I guess it's eight years now, maybe of uh, doing some stuff for um, 11 alive. Uh, I've done some stuff for them in the mornings and then done some stuff for Atlanta and company. Um, they do some panel conversation stuff. And uh, I am interested always to hear what people have to say about things and, you know, try to be funny when, circumstances uh allow themselves yeah well it's appreciated let me tell you i mean there's not too many guys out there talking about this stuff so we appreciate it i did want to i really did want to dig a great job you've got you've got you get great guests great guests right um the book is awesome so congratulations on that thank you jimmy i appreciate Um, it yeah so you're definitely filling a need in the uh in the, in the marketplace. You got to, before I leave, I had all these other good questions, but give me one. Okay. You own a comedy club, you perform mm-hmm. stand up. Give me one, you know, either the biggest person you've ever been bumped for one crazy story that you've seen inside the club or the biggest act that you've, you followed. Um, so I got a, I have a, I was bumped when I was in LA in law school. I did actually get bumped for Seinfeld. 
Oh, wow. So uh, it was an open mic night. It was actually, it was a terrific experience. My, um, one of the biggest lessons that I think I took away from comedy is um, the Thursday night show at a lot of clubs is not the busiest night of the week. It's often the first night that the performer will be there. Mm -hmm. They've traveled typically in that day. And so you may get a light audience, 30 people, 40 people, something like that. Um, and I'm always interested to see which comics give their real show and which comics phone it in. And I always think less of the comedians who phone it in. That those people chose to come out on Thursday night. They want to see your show. And so you should give them your show. So I was in Los Angeles. I'm in law school. I'm an open mic comedian. I'm at the improv on Melrose. Um, at that time, there was a Monday night show that I often went up on. One of the not big nights for comedy is Monday. Um, and you'd, you know, your spot might be 1045, 11 o'clock, 1115, whatever it is. So I go down, I get there, I sign in. The guy who is running the show says, hey, listen, um, we've got a, a special guest that's coming in. I'm gonna put him up right before you. So he says, okay, fine, who is it? Turns out it's Seinfeld. So there were other comedians that were up that night. There were maybe 15 to 20 people that were in the audience. To a person, those comics were eating it. They were not giving full show. They were doing 12, 15, 20 people worth of energy kind of shows. Mm -hmm. And all the comedians were like, this audience stinks. And this is, well, I don't even know why I bothered doing this. And then Seinfeld comes out. And Seinfeld gave a show just like you would see if you bought a $150 ticket at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. It was his show. He was doing all new material. He, was, he had a pad. He was working through some stuff. But it was a show. Um, I went up after him um, and did reasonably poorly in comparison. Um, but very much learned uh, the value of you give your show. Um, and I think sometimes we'll have a tendency to do that in life, that there's any number of opportunities where you think, I don't, I don't, I came prepared to do the show, but now that I see the environment, I'm not really going to give the show. Mm -hmm. um, and figuratively speaking. Um, so I am a proponent of doesn't matter to the audience, you, you need, you're obligated to kind of give the show. Mm -hmm. um, I've had, uh, a, a, so I've had a good opportunity over the years to, to, to get to work with some people who were influential maybe uh, in terms of the comedy business generally. Um, and really, I've enjoyed hanging with people off stage more than I sometimes watch seeing the show. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway. So yeah. who are your favorites? Who are, the, cool. who are you, uh, who are oh, you I'm into such right a, now? We saw Chappelle here in Atlanta. He didn't make it to the punchline, yeah. but it was incredible. And uh, yeah. I mean, it really is. seems like a renaissance of comedy now with YouTube and everything. I'm yeah. like Mark Norman, Joe List, mm -hmm. all these guys yep. are just Soder. So did you see Soder was incredible. Oh, he was terrific. Yeah. Um, so did you see Chappelle when he was with Jon Stewart? Was that the show? Uh, no, it was when he did like seven and it turned into his Netflix special, a tabernacle okay. in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he was, he was here. So there was a show that he did. It was, uh, him and John Stewart, um, Darnell, um, Donnell Rawlings. Donnell Rawlings. Yeah. yeah. 
um, Michelle Wolf, I think was on it. Those were the three, four main acts. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, um, Chris Rock was a special ad. So that was like a super loaded up, um, but you know what? Where? This was a punchline or no? It was at, no, it was at Tabernacle. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I gotta tell you, there's just something that will always seem super neat to me when I, I always think comedy is such a great equalizer, right? That, that you don't laugh harder necessarily because Chappelle told you the joke versus mm -hmm. an open micer, right? Laughing hard is laughing hard. When it works good or works well, it doesn't matter who told you the joke. Funny is funny. And, and that's what I've loved most about comedy over these years is mm -hmm. that there's this great camaraderie um, that, you know, there, there people, maybe musicians argue about the best guitarist or the best drummer, you know, whatever it is. Comedy is less that way. You go tell a good joke and it's a great joke. Mm -hmm. Doesn't your, famous who is your favorite? Joke. I'm sure you've got a lot. You've got a, a top three that, that you just love. Um, so there's, there are some comedians. So what I find, what I, what I'm always struck by is I have a style that I am on stage. I have a pace at which I would work. And so I really admire comedians who can work at a different pace than me, mm -hmm. you know, um, because it's, it's, it's like, uh, I maybe run a marathon and they're sprinters and I'm like, how do you run so fast so quick? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, we, I actually had a, an interesting experience before everything got shut down. So Jeff Foxworthy was writing some new, working on some new material uh, that he's working together for a new special. So when he, he'll come to the club and work the material out and his process is very methodical, writes them all out on note cards, starts them in a box, moves them to a box, finishes them in a third box, right? Kind of works through that way. And over the last couple of times I've sat in the green room and listen rather than watch the show to kind of hear it instead. So he had this bit that he was working on and the, and the overview of it is that the amount of information that a woman tries to download in a conversation is more than a guy's capacity to store it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's just, you're trying to fit gigs into Megs. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so he had this whole litany of things that he was going through in this conversation. And he, and he, one of the phrases he used was one of us. And so as she's having this conversation, you know, one of us has to take the dog to the vet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the note that I wrote was uh, for him was um, wife's pet name. Right. So after the show and we were, he said, what did you think? And did you hear any tags and whatever? And I says, well, yeah, actually I've got this tag that I think would really work in this bit is that you realize your wife has this pet name for you. Um, and it's one of us. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, he goes, I like that. I go, so what do you think? And he goes, it doesn't really fit for how I write my jokes. And I says, well, can I use it? And he says, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. You wrote it, you know? So, so I, so listening to his set, I wound up with a new joke yeah. and that is a joke that I now use in my set to be like, Oh my God, you guys, I've been married for 20 years, but I realized that my wife has this pet name for me that I never even picked up after all this time. It's adorable. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's one of us. 
<laughs> She'll always say, well, so one of us has got to take the dog to the vet. And I'm like, it, she doesn't mean her, right? She never <laughs> means that. It's always me. Uh, so, um, so, you know, that's one of those weird fluky things of, I mean, you know, perks of the job. What a, what a cool yeah. experience being around all those people every day. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, that's yeah. amazing that you put yourself in a position to, to be in that world. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So it's neat. I've been very blessed. So, well, Jamie, anyway. I appreciate it. We'll have to do this again. Talk more comedy. Where can people find yeah. more about what you're doing? I know you're big on Instagram. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, Instagram is at, at Jamie, the lawyer, uh, websites, Jamie Um, and, uh, you know, if, if anybody has any reason to talk to me anymore, come and find me. I'm always happy to chit chat. You can usually find me at the gym most, most days, I'll riding the bike, happy to talk. <laughs> Punchline is back open. So, Punchline is, is doing comedy. We're again. back open. We're back open. We have reduced seating. Uh, everybody's distanced. It's, Safe. um, safer. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's safer. Yeah. I, uh, you still know, have to I sign a waiver when you walk in. Huh? You, uh, there is a waiver that's up. Yeah. Is it, here's the craziest thing. My, as a personal injury lawyer, right? That's my other principal profession. Um, I am anti-waiver guy. Like I am Johnny no waivers. I don't like this tort reform stuff that wants to limit liability on things. I, I'm big on accountability and all the rest of it. When it comes to all in the comedy club, <laughs> I have my waiver sign right <laughs> at the front door. Yeah. Uh, you, you make sure that, you know, the pr protection's there, right? Yeah. It's the player, not the game. Uh, <laughs> it's the game, not the player, whatever you're going to say, right? Oh, that's good. So, yeah. All right. But I'm well, glad to hear everything's good with you. Was there anything that I need? I was supposed to have asked you? No, you know, we're good. We're good. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll grab a beer if I need to have one of those talks, though, for sure. Anytime, by yeah. all means. All right, and Jamie. I would say that to anybody else. If you are at risk and you have no one else to call, I am a no judgments. Reach out to me and say, I actually need some help. Uh, you might get some DMs please. now, so be ready. Okay, that's all right. That's all right, fine. Jamie. All right, buddy. Be good. Thank you guys for listening to the Dad the Best I Can podcast on BYLR Radio. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a dad friend and go check out the new Dad the Best I Can book available on Amazon. I take the top highlights from 52 guests on the Dad the Best I Can podcast, like Jesse Itzler, David Cancel, and put them all into a nice little book. Makes a great gift for Dad. Go check it out on Amazon. I appreciate each and every one of you listening and talking Dad life with me. I'll see you on the next episode of the Dad the Best I Can podcast on BYLR Radio.